Welcome back to Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast. Thank you for listening and for telling a friend. Please stay tuned after the show to learn how you can visit us online via the website and social media. This is a true crime podcast. It contains descriptions of murders and other assaults. Listener discretion is advised. It was a cold night towards the end of September 1973 when two monsters, Jerry Jenkins and Ron Kennedy, murdered a little girl and then raped, bludgeoned, and attempted to murder that little girl's older sister. The teenage girl they tried to kill was thrown over the top of a bridge, bounced against rocks, and then plummeted into the water below. Her legs weren't working after that, and to get out of the water, she had to pull herself up along the rocks with just her arms. It was very cold, and she had just a wet shirt on, nothing else. It's amazing she survived at all, let alone all the way until the next morning, when a car came along in the very early morning hours with two saints of people who were able to get her to help. Her survival is the only reason the rapist murderers were caught. The townspeople naturally were furious that these sickos lived among them and did that to these two girls. They took up a collection to get the monsters out on bail. Why would they want to get them out? So that they could be an easier target to get justice faster. The bail collection idea did not work. However, the murderers ended up getting their justice through the court system with life in prison instead. This was in Casper, Wyoming in the 1970s, not the 1870s, but you can see why they might want to exact their revenge, even if it's not technically right. In Jackson, Wyoming in 1964, an angry mob tried to break Andrew Pixley out of jail. Pixley was a drifter who had raped and killed two young girls at a local hotel. He had broke into the hotel room of a judge and his family by climbing up a pile of wood on the side of the building. The judge and their wife came back into the room and found Andrew Pixley laying intoxicated on their floor. Then they discovered two of their three daughters murdered. Pixley had sexually assaulted and killed Debbie, 12, and Cindy, 8. Their six-year-old daughter, Susan, was untouched, but most likely witnessed the horror. Pixley escaped being hung by the mob, but was, however, executed legally a few months later in a gas chamber at the Wyoming State Penitentiary. Vigilante Justice There are cases of murder and assaults that are so horrendous that they can make us understand why people would want to exact their own justice. The cases we are talking about today are crimes just that bad. In each case, the people who knew the victims or lived near them were outraged and horrified by the crimes. On December 4, 1888, the body of a young girl was found floating in East Lake in Birmingham. They had to lay her out at a local funeral home in hopes of someone identifying her because no one seemed to be looking for a missing girl, and the people that found her did not know who she was. A local butcher was the one to finally identify her as May Hawes. Her parents were Richard and Emma Hawes, and they had three children, May, Irene, and Willie. Richard was an engineer on the Georgia Pacific Railroad and was gone a lot. Emma turned to drink and was largely charged up as an alcoholic. That mainly left May to take care of her younger sister Irene and her little brother Willie. May's was the only body found and the family was gone from their house. Authorities talked to the house housekeeper and she said that a few days before May's body was found, she saw Richard and May helping Emma pack. The way the housekeeper understood it was that Emma was going to pick up her son from Richard's brother's house. 
Other people in town said they thought Richard and Emma were divorced and that they had heard Richard was traveling to Mississippi to remarry. Soon it was confirmed that Richard had indeed married a woman named Mays Story in Mississippi, who was now Mays Hawes. Mays Story Hawes told them that Richard had told her that he was widowed and had only one son. The two daughters were never mentioned to her. Four days after May was found on December 8th, the first Mrs. Hawes was found. Her body was discovered in Lakeview Park Lake. It had been weighed down with iron. After this discovery, people were clamoring to have little Irene found. The lake was drained, and they found poor little Irene also weighted down with iron. Later that evening of December 8th, a mob of about 2,000 people convened at the Jefferson County Jail to hang Hawes. Sheriff Joseph S. Smith had to give shotguns and rifles to prison guards and had them go up on the roof of the jail in order to protect the prisoner until he could have his trial. This night ended in violence. The sheriff shouted several warnings, but the mob continued to advance. He ordered a volley of shots into the crowd, which tragically ended up in 10 deaths. The prisoner did survive, though, and made it to his trial. On May 3, 1889, a jury found Richard Hawes guilty and gave him the death penalty. After he was tried and sentenced to death, Hawes tried to implicate John Wiley, a railroad conductor in Atlanta, of the murders of Mrs. Emma Hawes and her daughters Irene and May. John Wiley was arraigned, but the justice promptly dismissed him. Hawes was the only witness against Wiley, and all the other evidence and witnesses against Hawes contradicted what he said against Wiley. Hawes had claimed that Wiley had told him he would kill his wife and children for $200. Then after it was done, according to Hawes, Wiley had come back and told him that they were where they would never trouble him again. He claimed Wiley tried to tell him how it had been done, but that he told the man he didn't want to hear that. He said he paid him $200 in greenbacks and then did not see him again. The evidence that came up in trial against Hawes was this. Friday night, November 30th, 1888, Hawes had a talk with his wife, and neighbors overheard him cursing and beating her. He had told her of his intentions to marry and had offered her money to go away, but she had refused. The next day, Saturday, he was seen at his home with his wife and children. Later that same day, Mrs. Hawes was seen with her children packing household items. She told neighbors that her husband was selling out his old furniture and that they were all going to board in town. Saturday afternoon, Hawes went to G.P. Fuller's boarding house and asked for board for himself his wife that he was about to marry, and a child of five years old. Saturday night, Hawes took his son Willie to the depot and gave him to his brother, James Hawes of Atlanta. Nothing was said about the rest of the family. Sunday morning, Hawes walked by Lakeview, which was about a half mile from where his family lived, and talked to a friend about the depth of the water. That same morning, one of the boatmen found that someone had used one of the boats Saturday night. Monday morning, Hawes told several people that Mrs. Hawes was angry with him and had taken Irene off with her to Atlanta. When Hawes left his house later Monday morning, he had May stay with Fanny Bryant to continue packing. He told Bryant that his wife and Irene had gone to Birmingham. Hawes came back in the afternoon on Monday and got May from Fanny Bryant's house. Monday night at 7, he boarded a train bound for Eastlake and May was with him. There was a credible witness that saw them both. At 8 p.m. Monday night, a different credible witness saw Hawes in Eastlake by himself. Hawes had told this witness that he had just escorted a woman home who was a friend of his wife's. 
a conductor saw Hawes returning to the city train at 8.30. Hawes was alone. Monday night at 9 p.m., Hawes went into a drugstore that had a jewelry stand, and he asked about some jewelry that he had left there. It was Tuesday that little May's body was found in Eastlake. Wednesday afternoon, Hawes married Miss May's story. Wednesday night is when he arrived back to town with his new wife and was then arrested. The second Mrs. Hayes told the story of how Richard Hawes wooed her. He had told her that he was a widower with only one child, a son, aged five. When Hawes was arrested in front of her, he had sent her to a hotel with the help of a friend. It was two hours before she was told of the charges against him. She was quoted in the newspaper on this. I could not believe it. It seemed too horrible. I thought I was dreaming. That night I did not close my eyes and sleep. My brain was in a whirl. I did not know what to believe or what to do. When her father heard the news about Hawes, he had sent a telegraph for her to return home, and she did so immediately. Asked if she loved the man that she married, she said, No, I hate him. I loved a man who looked like Mr. Hawes, but I never loved a monster, a fiend in human shape. February 28, 1890, Richard Hawes was hanged. People bought tickets to watch this monster of a man be executed. Some paid as much as $200 for the privilege. Willie Hawes, the only one to survive in this family, was in Atlanta with his uncle, Jim Hawes. Here is one where the mob justice was successful. Brooke Hart. On November 9, 1933, in San Jose, California, Brooke Hart was abducted by two men in his own Studebaker. His family was contacted and a $40,000 ransom demand was made. Investigators found Thomas Thurman and John Holmes. They both confessed and implicated each other. Sadly, Brooke Hart, the 22-year-old son of a wealthy San Jose merchant, was not still alive. Thomas Harold Thurmond explained how the kidnapping for ransom went, according to him. The sheriff said both of them confessed and their confessions differed only minorly in how they placed the most blame on each other. The details were mainly the same. Thurman said that he and Jack Holmes had discussed the crimes weeks before they did it. On November 9th, Brooke Hart got into his roadster and drove out the driveway toward Market Street, where Jack Holmes met him and opened the door. He had one hand in his pocket as if carrying a gun. He forced Hart to drive away with him. Thurman said that he was parked in Holmes' Chevrolet coach on Market Street, and as they drove by, he followed them. They met up at the prearranged destination of Spangler Garage in Milpitas. They then drove to Evans Road about seven miles from San Jose. They took Hart to a bridge, knocked him unconscious with a brick, then bound him, and then they threw him in the bay. Even more tragically, Thurman indicated that Hart had struggled slightly when they lifted him up the railing of the bridge, indicating that he was still alive but in a bad way when they tossed him over into the bay. Then they split the whole $7.50 that was in Brooke Hart's wallet and drove off. Later, Thurman called the Hart family home and let them know that they had Brooke and wanted $40,000 in ransom and not to call the police. They drove to Sacramento where they mailed out instructions to the family. Why they had to kill Brooke Hart is unknown. For some horrible reason, they never gave the young man a chance, killing him almost immediately and then taking their time to try and collect ransom for someone they know was already dead. At the time of the murder, Holmes was married with children and was an operator of a San Jose service station. Thurman was employed by an oil company. They were known to be from respected families. 
It was after Hart's body washed ashore on November 25th that a vigilante mob began to form. Newspapers and radio stations reported that it was possible there would be a lynching. The mob beat the guards and used a battering ram to break into the cells of the jail. Thurman and Holmes were hanged on large trees in a park nearby. Some interesting things happened after that vigilante violence that does show how much the world has changed. This was 1933, and some of the participants had actually bragged about being in charge of the mob, but they had not been held accountable for their actions. At Stanford University, a professor asked his students to stand and applaud the lynching, and Governor James Rolfe publicly praised the mob. The best lesson ever given to the country, he said. I would like to parole all kidnappers in San Quentin to the fine patriotic citizens of San Jose. Vigilante Justice at Cherry Creek Bridge, North Dakota. On January 29, 1931, in the dark of the night, a group of masked men from Mackenzie County gathered at the jailhouse where Charles Bannon was being held. Using a makeshift battering ram, they broke down the door and demanded to see the deputy on duty. The telephone line had been cut, so there was no way to call for backup. It took an incredible effort, but the mob was able to break down the cell door and get to Charles Bannon. They then locked up the deputy as well as the sheriff who had come in during the action. The mob took Bannon to the bridge at Cherry Creek. They tied his hands behind his back and put one end of the noose around his neck and the other around the bridge. They lifted him to the railing and told him to jump. Charles refused to move and someone ended up pushing him over. The coroner described the results of the death as a fractured neck. What happened to incite such a riot? The killings of an entire farm family of six is what did it. Albert Haven, 50, his wife Lula, 39, and their four children, Daniel, 18, Leland, 14, Charles, 2, and Mary, 2 months, all lived on the farm. The family had occupied it for 10 years. Albert Haven was a successful farmer, and the family was quiet but friendly. The family would collect mail when they went to town, and they had relatives in Minnesota. When mail started stacking up at the post office and loan payments went past due, people began to wonder what happened to the Havens. Nobody had seen any of them after February 9, 1930, so eight months had gone by. Havens' relatives from Minnesota contacted authorities as they had not heard from them either. Sheriff Charles Jacobson went to the Haven farm and soon found that the Haven family was not there, as of course suspected. He did find Charles Bannon there, a 21-year-old farm worker that Mr. Haven had hired. Bannon told Mr. Haven had left him in charge of taking care of the farm and that they had all gone to Oregon, where they had once lived many years before. He told the sheriff he had taken them to the train station himself. It took some time, but the sheriff got in touch with people in Colton, Oregon, where the family had supposedly gone, but they were not there. He was told it was a tiny little hamlet village, and the family, nor no one with that last name of Haven, was there. Next, the sheriff talked to the ticket agent at the train station, and he had no memory or record of them leaving from there. Because Charles Bannon had sold some hogs from the farm, the sheriff was able to arrest him for larceny. While he was in jail, they were able to discover more evidence. Winter clothing for the family was found at the farm. It was February when the family disappeared, so they would have needed it in North Dakota. They put Charles Bannon in the Williston jail rather than Schaefer in Mackenzie County, as it was safer for him. They confronted Charles with all the facts of the case that they had, but Charles would not budge and told them nothing further. It wasn't until after a visit from Bannon's mother and a minister that he decided to talk. 
He told them that Lula Haven, the mother, had gone mad and killed her whole family. He said she had paid him $100 to help bury the bodies and then take her to the train station. He drew up a map showing where he had helped bury the bodies. Using the map, they found the body of little Charles Haven in the manure pile. In a straw pile, they found the bodies of Albert, Daniel, and Leland. Digging further beneath, they found the bodies of Mary Haven and Lula Haven, the mother. She had not gone off on a train after all. She had been killed and buried. Charles, of course, had not been telling the truth. In his confession, Charles Bannon said he had an argument that last morning with Daniel and Leland Haven. It resulted in him pulling out his 25-20 rifle and shooting Daniel in the right temple, killing him dead. Leland then tried to shoot Bannon, but Bannon shot him first. Albert and Lula soon discovered what happened, and so Charles said he had to shoot them. After that, he went into the house and shot baby Mary and little Charles. After his confession, Bannon was moved back to McKenzie County. Word spread, of course, that he had confessed to killing the whole family. People were concerned somehow that he would not get convicted. Also, North Dakota did not have the death penalty at the time, and this was one crime that plenty thought worthy of the death penalty. And as so we know, the angry mob of citizens took care of the situation by taking Bannon out to the bridge over Cherry Creek. An investigation was ordered by the governor, but no one ever confessed to their part in the lynching, and no names from the lynching party ever publicly surfaced. Charles Bannon was the last person lynched in North Dakota. Rosalie, Nebraska, May 13, 1907. Another farmhand decided to commit murder as well. Loris Higgins, who used an alias of Fred Burke, shot his boss, Walter Koppel, with a shotgun. When Walter's wife, Eva, came running outside, he killed her as well. The couple had seven children, and most reports say they saw the whole thing. It came out much later that Higgins sexually assaulted Blanche, the couple's 13-year-old daughter, soon after the killings. He then stole what money he could from the family, around $900, and put the bodies in a hog pen before he took off on a mule. One day later, after taking off, Higgins was captured in Omaha, Nebraska. Higgins had known that Mr. Koppel had recently received a check in payment for some cattle. He also knew that Koppel had received a cash payment for some grain his neighbor had bought from him. Higgins had had a preliminary trial where much came out about the hideous crimes. Higgins claims he was drunk when he committed the deed. He at first claimed that he stayed with the children and tried to pacify them before he made his getaway. The evidence showed that Mr. Koppel was shot just outside the door and the bullet from the shotgun went through his body and into the door of the house. After he had fallen to the ground, he was shot again, this time through the head. Mrs. Koppel heard the shots, rushed to the door, and was hit on the head with a ball bat, then dragged outside where she was beaten to death. This was around 2 a.m. One newspaper account says the oldest daughter, 13, then came to the door, and Higgins pushed her back into the room and told her to be quiet. He said there were burglars out there and her parents were watching them. He then helped feed the twin babies who had been crying. Around 4 a.m., one of the little girls saw him ride over a hill westward on one of her father's mules. He was arrested the next day in Hooper and taken to Omaha, where he made his confession. His confession was not exactly what happened, as evidence and witnesses later showed. After shooting the farmer and killing his wife, Higgins said he went back into the house and went to sleep until 4 a.m. He left out the part about raping the 13-year-old daughter. He also said he shot the wife, but evidence showed that she was beaten to death. Interestingly, a sheriff from Lamars, Iowa, was looking for Higgins at the time of the murder. He was wanted on a charge of forgery, 
Higgins had been working for the Ears family during corn picking. He had apparently forged a check from the family for $35 and cashed it in a saloon. He also forged two checks for $10 each from another farmer near there. So that explained why he was using an alias when he went to work for the Koppel family. Asked if he had any motive for the crime on the Koppels, he said he had none. He said the Koppels were always nice to him and never had unkind words for him, except for once when he had whipped the mules one day. August 26, 1907, Higgins was lynched by a mob of citizens who first extracted a confession and then hung him from the highest beam on Logan Bridge. It was said that the snapping of his neck could be heard, but even so, some 40 bullets were shot into his body as he hung there. The group left the body hanging there. Most reports say that it came out after the lynching that Loris Higgins had assaulted the daughter after the murders. In the Sioux City Journal, I quote, It has been learned that the criminal followed up his assault on the Koppel parents by an even more hideous attempt on the oldest daughter, Blanche, age 13 years, and that he accomplished his purpose three times before fleeing from the scene of his crimes. One of the sons of the Koppels told at an inquest that Higgins was stuck on Blanche and told him many times that he wanted to run away with her. Higgins had made it to his preliminary hearing in Pender, having been secretly hurried to Pender from Omaha. However, for the second hearing, word got out that they would be transporting him back to Pender. During transport, the sheriff was met by masked men. The sheriff's deputy pulled his revolver, but the men told him to put it down. When he didn't listen, they knocked it out of his hand, knocked him down, and told him not to be foolish. In July of 1907, there was an article in the Valentine Democrat about the fact that Loris Higgins was happy to be back in jail from Omaha after his first trip to Pender for the preliminary hearing. He was quoted as saying, If they caught me and lynched me, I was ready for it. Of course, I was a little scared after all the talking about lynching me, but I felt I was in good hands. Sheriff Young had some pretty clever tricks, and the fellows at Pender never really knew what was going on until it was all over. Thank you again for listening to Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast. If you would like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash cherryavenuetruecrime. You can also visit us online at cherryavenuetruecrime.com. And we are on social media on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Normally, at this point in the show, we go over the historic cases that we find in the newspaper that could be very similar to the main case that we talked about in the episode. However, this one was full of history, so we won't be doing that in this episode. But next episode, we certainly will be back to that. Stay tuned for the exciting portion where I tell you of all the sources that I've used for this episode. And as always, be safe. Sources for the episode are bamwiki.com onlyinyourstate.com, history.com, theminutemanblog.com, bismarcktribune.com, Macon Telegraph, Sioux City Journal, Iowa, and it was mentioned in my research, but I didn't, uh, didn't read the book, but um, I've heard it's pretty good about the Bannon case. It's called, from Dennis Johnson wrote it, called End of the Rope. The name of the book is End of the Rope by Dennis Johnson. It's about the Charles Bannon case. And I guess there's a museum in Waterford City that tells about the story. It's located in the Long X Trading Post Visitor Center. And according to them, they pretty much can't keep the book in stock. It's that good. So um, just wanted to throw that out there in case you wanted to hear more about the case. I'm sure it's probably a lot more detailed. 
And of course, newspapers.com for all the historic newspapers of the day.